We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke 22, 1 through 23. Let's just set that in context so we can hear the story as part of the overall story of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples and a number of other pilgrims coming there to celebrate the Passover. He'd entered the city in a very deliberate way as part of a part of a royal parade, according to what's pictured in Zechariah chapter 9. And then he's been teaching in the temple uh, all week long, and people have been coming early in the morning to listen to him teach. At night, he's been going out to the uh, Mount of Olives. Uh, well, now we've arrived at the part of the week where it's actually time for Passover. And so it's Thursday. And the Passover feast is ready to begin. And this is the way Luke tells the story. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the Passover is a celebration of the events that you can read about in the book of Exodus, particularly in Exodus chapter 12, where the death angel passed over the doors on which the Jews had uh, painted blood around the doors, and the death angel took the firstborn of all males throughout the land of Egypt. That led to the Israelites fleeing Egypt, and then eventually Egypt being in pursuit, the Red Sea parted, and all of that. And at the end of getting through the Red Sea, they celebrate how God redeemed them from slavery and set them free. And that's what Passover is a celebration of, is how God, with his mighty outstretched arm, redeemed Israel out from the slavery of the Egyptians, set them free, and formed them as his people. And so Passover is a, a significant, like central event in the national identity of the Jewish people. And in Jesus' day, it was celebrated on the 15th of Nisan, which, according to our calendar, is right around March and April. And it was followed then by a week-long feast of unleavened bread. And so that's what we're, we're at here in both the calendar of Jesus' life and in the story of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 2 says, and the chief priests and the scribes were trying to find a way to put him to death since they were afraid of the people. So the Passover is quickly approaching. The, the temple leadership there in Jerusalem wants to put Jesus to death, but they were trying to find a way to do it on the sly covertly because they didn't want to stir up a riot during Passover and have the Romans do what the Romans do in those kinds of situations. And so they're, they're trying to get this figured out so they don't create a riot. They're trying to figure this out so that the crowds don't attack them. And here's what happened according to Luke's gospel. Luke uh, chapter 22 verse 3 says, And Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And so Judas, one of the apostles, the one called Iscariot means probably refers to his hometown, uh, the town of Cariote. Uh, and so Satan entered him, and he left and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he was going to betray Jesus to them. So they're looking for a way to put him to death, and Judas 
uh, is willing to oblige. And though Judas is fully culpable and responsible for this betrayal, this is not simply a human assault on Jesus. Satan, it says, is clearly at work here too, and he's found a willing participant in the person of Judas. And so uh, Judas, because of his own desires and his own character, now is commandeered by Satan's aim and Satan's agenda. And according to Luke 4.13, Satan has been looking for an opportune time uh, to go after Jesus again, and this is it. This is his time. And so human wickedness and spiritual powers of evil work together to crucify Jesus, but God triumphs by using it all to achieve his purposes in salvation. Well, now that Judas has gone and conferred with the chief priest and he has uh, demonstrated his willingness to betray Jesus, they came up with a plan. And verse 5 says, they were delighted, the chief priests and the scribes were delighted, and agreed to give him, Judas, some money. And we know from Matthew's account of this that it was 30 pieces of silver. And so Judas consented and began looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them away from the crowd. So now the stage is set. You have the high priests and the scribes on the human power side. You have Satan on the supernatural power side. And in the middle, you have Judas, a willing pawn in a very evil plan. Verse 7. Now, the first day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb was sacrificed. This is Passover itself. But Luke here calls it the first day of unleavened bread, probably because of the way he set this story up in verse 1 where he talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread was approaching. And so you have, in verse 1, the approach of unleavened bread. Verse 7 here, you have the arrival of unleavened bread. And in the middle of all of that, you have the plot to kill Jesus. Since Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, this is also appropriate to bracket the plot to kill him with the approach and the arrival of the unleavened bread feast or the Passover. So the preparations need to be made for the Passover since it's the day for the Passover. And this is going to be a most unique and most special Passover. Verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upstairs room. Prepare it there. It seems as if Jesus had made arrangements with someone uh, about uh, kind of a covert cue as to where he and his disciples were going to celebrate the Passover. My suspicion is Jesus had made these arrangements and wanted to keep things on the down low because he knew what Judas was up to. We've already seen that through the Gospel of Luke. He knew what the chief priests and scribes wanted to do. That's been made obvious to him. And so he's got to kind of keep his whereabouts a little bit on the, the sly so he can celebrate this Passover 
before the climactic events of his life. And the tip-off for this little covert plan is a man carrying a water jar, which would be unusual since women typically carried water jars. So that would be their cue to connect with this guy. And he's going to show them a guest room where they may eat the Passover. The word guest room is the same word that is traditionally translated in and Jesus' birth story way back in Luke chapter 2. But as we noted there, it actually refers not to a hotel or an inn, but to a large guest room attached to a family home. So this man carrying a water jar will show Peter and John the large upper guest room in the family home, and that's where they're supposed to prepare the Passover. So verse 13, they left and found everything just as Jesus had told them, and there they prepared the Passover. So now they are getting the room set up. They're setting the table. Picture low, like low table, right, with a U-shaped couch around it with pads on it. And that's where you would recline and eat. There's going to be the whole roasting of the lamb and everything that goes in to the preparing of a massive holiday feast for Jesus and his disciples. And in what follows then here in this episode, Luke describes the heart of the Passover meal. Now, typically Passover, the Passover supper was a meal that lasted several hours, but we're not told any like fun details about the meal. We're not talking about the banter. We're not, we're told very little about the whole meal itself. We're only given the most important part, the part where Jesus explains the meaning of his death, which is, which is going to happen in the next 15 hours or so. And his death, uh, Luke will tell us, is for them. And his death will establish the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31. This is Luke's portrayal of the Last Supper. Look at verse 14. Now, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. So you got to picture that low table with these kind of benches or couches around it with, with mattresses on them. And they're all reclining around this table and they are going to eat the Passover meal together. The hour for the meal has come. And the hour uh, that really begins the culminating events of Jesus' life and God's saving work through him. And he said to them, verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus expresses his heart, his deep desire to eat this, this very special Passover feast with them. Jesus knows he's about to suffer, and he knows it's all coming to a climax here. Um, he says um, that he will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Here's the little challenge with that phrase is that word again is supplied. It's not in the original. So literally it says, for I say to you, I shall not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And does he mean I shall not eat it again? Or even though he wants to eat this Passover with them, He's not going to eat for some reason. It's not really clear. I, I tend to think that the supplied again is probably correct. And so he's just saying, I'm eating this with you. I've been looking forward to this. This is the last time I'm eating it with you for a long time. 
I think that's what he's getting at here. And specifically the time is until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? And there really are two options and scholars are kind of split on that. Uh, It could refer to the messianic banquet at the end of time when the kingdom comes completely and fully after Jesus returns. So he's not going to eat a feast like this with these guys in this way until that day. Or the other option is to see this as a reference to the Lord's Supper or communion, since he institutes communion here at this Passover. Uh, And since uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whichever word you use for that, is actually pictured as sort of like a Passover celebration. And Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb by the apostles. And so maybe that's what he's getting at, that he's going to eat it at least in some sort of way, experientially and symbolically with his people through the Lord's Supper. I'm not totally sure exactly which one is the best option here. I tend to think the former that we're thinking about. He's not going to have a big uh, meal like this with his disciples in this exact same way until uh, the end of time in the Messianic banquet. I think that's what he's getting at. Probably not 100% clear. Either way, what we have in verses 15 and 16 is Jesus' like expression of, I'm super excited to share this meal with you. I'm about to suffer and things are going to change radically and drastically after this. Then he goes on in verse 17 and says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this. Share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. This is not the communion cup. That's going to come later in verse 20. Passover feasts include four designated cups throughout the feast. And this is likely the first cup of the feast. And Jesus uses it sort of as like almost a cup of fellowship. He restates that he's not eating and drinking like this until the kingdom of God comes, as was just mentioned above. But by inviting them to drink from it with them, he's inviting them into full union with himself. Take this cup and share it among you. So they're actually sharing one cup, which is why it is a picture of this intimate, both personal as well as communal union with Jesus himself. Then in what follows in verses 19 and following, Luke gives Jesus' reinterpretation of the Passover feast around himself. Passover celebrated the Exodus story, God's great redemption of Israel out from under the power of Egypt. Well, Jesus is inaugurating a new Exodus, bringing a greater redemption, a redemption from sin and the powers of evil. And so he's going to take the Passover meal and reinterpret it around himself. So this is what he says in verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus alters the traditional blessing of the bread at the Passover feast by saying that this bread symbolizes him and what's going to happen to him, specifically to his body. Just as the bread is broken, well, so his body will be broken. At the Passover, the Jewish interpretation of the bread stated, 
This is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate when they came out of Egypt. And they understood the bread that they were eating wasn't literally the same bread that uh, their ancestors ate and that they weren't experiencing the exact same thing that their ancestors experienced, but that the bread represented the, the affliction that their ancestors endured and that the bread enabled them to relive that experience. Well, now... Jesus offers a new understanding of the Passover bread, and it's centered on him. He's like the living bread, and just as the bread was broken and passed out, so his body's going to be broken. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Well, just as Passover was a reliving, not just a retelling, but really by eating it as a meal, it was a re-experiencing, a reliving of God's deliverance of Israel. Well, now this New Passover, uh, reinterpreted in and around and through Jesus, it's this meal is a reliving, a re-experiencing, a re-presentation, if you will, of God's saving work in and through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Verse 20 takes it the next step and says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is probably the third cup of the Passover celebration, which came after the meal. And once again, Jesus gives it a new symbolic meaning, revolving around his death. Just as the cup was poured out, so his blood will be poured out. And the word order in this translation is a bit awkward, but being poured out refers to Jesus' blood. So this cup not just is poured out for you, but it's actually... Uh, is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. So the being poured out is actually referencing his blood here. His blood is being poured out for you, for on their behalf, in their place, for them. And it will ratify, he says, the new covenant. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah had promised that God would make a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Well, this New Covenant now is being brought into existence, brought into uh, being ratified, really, by Jesus' death. And so this cup is going to signify that. The Old Covenant, you can read about it in the book of Exodus, was ratified by the pouring out of blood and then sprinkling it on the altar. Well, so too, the New Covenant in Jesus will be ratified with the pouring out of his own blood. Then Jesus goes on, knowing What's happening and where Judas is at, um, he actually highlights the betrayer with him. He says this in verse 21. Now behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they, meaning the apostles, began to debate amongst themselves which one of them it was who was going to do this. In the ancient world, the Mediterranean world, betrayal of someone that you shared table fellowship with, that you ate with, was especially reprehensible. And that's what Jesus is highlighting here. Like, my betrayer is sitting at this table with me. And so this Passover feast is marked by themes both dark and celebratory. It's marked by betrayal, suffering, death, blood, 
but it's also an invitation to join Jesus in intimate union. It's marked by the kingdom of God coming more fully and completely. It's marked by the inauguration of the new covenant. I mean, so you have both these dark themes and light themes, these sorrowful, weighty themes and these celebratory themes all converging here in this moment. And that's really what Jesus' death is all about, is both of those things. One commentator says, Passover memorializes the time when God spared the firstborn of Israel and delivered them from bondage. It would now be remembered by Christians as a time when God's firstborn would die and all humankind would be delivered from bondage to Satan and sin. And that's why this Passover is so unique and so special because now, instead of sparing the firstborn, it's the very firstborn of God, God's very own uniquely born son who is going to suffer and die and do so to redeem all humanity, all who would believe in him, out from under the power of sin and Satan. And so let's just offer a few reflections as we wrap up this section. Here at the culmination of his ministry and mission, Jesus gave a symbol-laden meal, a tangible experiential way to re-experience him and to re-experience his self-sacrificial love for us. Jesus achieved a new exodus by means of his own death. He delivered us from the bondage of sin and death and the powers of evil. And here, in this simple little meal of bread and wine, in this simple little act, here's an opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. The early church took this very seriously, and they celebrated it as often as they gathered together as a way to remind themselves who they were, to remind themselves of the centerpiece of Jesus and what he achieved for us. It was a key part of their worship, and it ought to be a key part of our worship. It shapes our identity. We are the people who are loved, by the very Son of God. We are the people who are shaped by his self-giving, self-sacrificial love. We are marked by the cross. And communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever we want to call it, is a key act that allows us to re-experience that love and to taste and see that the Lord is good.